2: This is your MC and musical tour guide, Big Papa Stampley. Welcome to the Gallant Goose and Friends, a weekly production of the Gallant Goose Radio Network, airing live from coast to coast and around the world on Thursday nights at 645 Eastern here on TalkShoot.com. Program number one three nine three three five. The primary focus of this interactive program is to discuss mortgage, foreclosure, defense and attack strategies and related homeowner issues with our guests and callers. We come to you from the birthplace of the American Bar Association and the home of Abraham Lincoln, Al Capone, The Untouchables, and Operation Greylord, where the motto is vote early, vote often, and according to some politicians, even when you're dead. Here you'll find general information about home loans and ownership notes and mortgages as well as pointers on lenders banks funding securitization regulations titles credit damage and more plus different forms of resolution when things go wrong between homeowners and lenders including respa fdcpa and TILA rescission with the help of our guests we'll try and find general answers to your questions on these and other popular topics now please remember this program is for general information only. No official advice regarding accounting, law, taxes, or other regulated services given here. If you need a lawyer or accountant, please hire one authorized to work in your state. This is your MC and musical tour guide, Big Papa Stanley, reminding y'all, when it comes to saving your house, don't let the Bank of Blues stop you from getting all your clues. We thank y'all for being here tonight. Let's try and help each other. Now, please welcome the host of the show, Greg Goose. Welcome, everyone,
1: to episode 43 of the Gallant Goose and Friends here on talk show number 139335. Today is Thursday, July 21st, 2016. We appreciate you all being here. Please keep passing the word along to your friends and family so that our flock can grow. Our topic for tonight is Hey, middle class mortgagees, you're rich. But what if you want to hope to collect? Which is better for you to claim? That there is no fraud or that you were the victim of fraud? Seriously, folks, what would you do if you found out that you were playing a part in something that was scripted for you to ensure that you never collected on a boatload of money that was set aside in your name a long time ago? Well, that is the essence of what our guests will try to show us and how we might just be able to stop playing the patsy and step up to make a proper claim. Tonight, for the first time on this program, we are fortunate enough to have with us former capital and secondary market CEO, accountant, banker, investor, Mr. Mayor Solomon, for part one of a three-part series on the details of modern mortgage creation, negotiation, and foreclosure from an insider's point of view. Being a bean counter's bean counter, he is not known for his warm bedside manner. Thus, over the years, Meyer has earned more than a few critics in his effort to convey complex accounting to the ordinary layman. In this series, we hope to give him a chance to slow down and take the time to express each phase of what he has been trying to tell everyone for the past ten
2: years. But before we get ahead of ourselves... A few important words. The Gallon Goose is not associated with any other program, law firm, accounting firm, or any other legal accounting or other licensed professional entity and is the sole responsibility of the private group of friends which constitute it. All opinions expressed are those of the participants alone, and no warranties expressed or implied. This call is being recorded for rebroadcast, so we do not recommend disclosing your private contact information. To contact or be contacted by other participants on this call, please email the host and we'll do our best to connect you offline. To hear past recordings, just go to www.talkshowe.com forward slash tc forward slash 139335 and select the episode. Also, to read the chat text from any past show, just go to www.chatgrabber.com. Type in our show number 139335 and select the episode. If you would like to receive a weekly email notifying you of the program, please email the host at thegallongoose at gmail.com with the subject line, Please add me to the goose. To be removed from the mailing list, use the subject line, Please pluck my goose.
1: Welcome back, everyone. Remember, justice should be blind, not you. Realize that you are as powerful as the tools that you master. So don't forget to check out some of those tools at www.howtowinincourt.com slash win slash gallongoose. And for those of you experiencing collectors or court cases messing with your credit scores, please remember to go to www.fixmyreport.com for a fast, easy, and final solution to credit score and credit damage. Now, for those of you who don't already know, here's a little background about tonight's guest. A native of Granada Hills, California, Meyer Solomon received his Bachelor's of Arts from California State University at Northridge in 1983 with a major in business, information technology, and economics, and later continued on at the University of California at Los Angeles, John Anderson School of Management, with an emphasis in accounting and investment economics. It would be short shrift, For us to forget to say that Meyer is in love with numbers and their relationships in the same way that Quincy Jones is in love with notes and music. He is obsessed with learning the underpinnings of complex mathematical algorithms affecting the human economic playing field. If you don't have a hobby that you love so much that makes you forget to go to your work, you probably can't even imagine what that's like. Meyer Solomon is a published contributor to various blogs and newsletters and has appeared in articles throughout the country, most recently in the area of banks and residential foreclosures. He is a featured speaker at NDA and other mortgage banking events, and has authored countless technical program descriptions and standard operating procedures. Having entered the capital market business around the time of the birth of the secondary markets, he has a comprehensive understanding of how home loans were converted into something that your grandparents would never recognize. So without further ado, let's all please welcome Meyer Solomon to the show. Hi,
3: how are you? Hi, Meyer. How are
1: you doing tonight?
3: Good. Yeah, what a wonderful uh, <laughs> introduction. I uh, appreciate that. Thank you. I don't know if uh, if, if I'm that uh, much of a quick trigger on the temper, but uh, I try to show as much patience as possible, and I will tonight.
1: Appreciate that a lot. (laughs) I hear you've made a few adversaries along the way on this journey to get certain inside banking information out to the average American. To be fair to you, I'd like to give you a chance here to start off by illuminating us on what's going on there and just what some of those uh, potential accusations might be. Go ahead.
3: Uh, you know, uh, people have to. Uh, Going to be the judge in the very end on on the character of the person that they're working with and, and, and how they perceive someone. But um, being a witness, an expert witness, uh, is not fun. And uh, in most every deposition I've been in, character assassination is uh, essential to the uh, to the other side of the opposition's uh, objectives. And uh, you never really know who is going to say what about you. I do know there's things that have been published about me, and people say not only are they horrific, but the, every other word was misspelled, and it seems to be an offshore uh, dot org, and uh, that gives you some insight to uh, you know how far maybe someone will go to uh, you know, put put down somebody, and, and it has usually to do with the fact they're testifying in a case, but. Where the uh, character character assassination uh, may succeed or fail, it's really what you have as far as knowledge that you'll uh, make or break a case and and help the the court decide on which way to go.
1: In addition to some of your expert, I can understand how the opposition would like to assassinate your character, but there's also a handful of folks out there who had, I guess, contracted with you to do particular personal services. you want to address that, too?
3: Um, whether you uh, engaged me in, in eight years ago or you engage me right now uh, as a witness, uh, what I'm going to do is provide you the same uh, level of detail and the same information. Nothing's changed. And I'll, I'll go ahead and submit that to the court in uh, a proper format. Uh, you might want to look at the Dalbert uh, decision, which uh, basically, you know, is the, the criteria for which a, an expert is going to operate. But I- I've always delivered the same thing. And if it's not what somebody's looking for, I can't. I can't really, uh, I can't address that other than I'm paid to do what I'm supposed to do and I will uh, provide my testimony to the court uh, with exactly what I see and what I find in a file.
1: Yeah, frequently on the show we've encountered guests, friends, callers that they're looking for a savior, right? They're looking for somebody who's going to, you know, provide them everything to just make it all go away. Okay. Is there an element of that that's going on here with you?
3: I I um uh, I I don't know <laughs> I can't I can't come on that I think they found it in this radio channel I, mean, I found my I found my salvation here every once a week now so I I don't know I, I can't really I, in conjecture I'm not real good at it. I would not bank on anything or invest in me as far as conjecture goes but what I know is what I'll what I share with you is what I can corroborate as fact and that's what, what I what I'd like to stick to
1: all right thanks so the audience knows you and I have probably spent. In pre-show interviews and vetting of your claims, longer than any—probably something like eight hours on the on the phone—and that's why we determined that we needed to break this interview into a three-part series so that we could help you make it more digestible for the audience. Right. I agree. So to get to our main topic, you said you wanted to tease everybody with the notion that the middle class was the wealthiest part of America, but they don't even know it, right?
3: I don't know if I used the word tease, but I, I think it's uh, definitely a worthy uh, uh, topic to start the uh, well, this program off on. So I think it's important to let them know where I'm coming from with, uh, with that. With that uh. uh-huh. I'm very cognizant of people's time. The fact that anybody would tune in or the fact that anybody would want to hear what anybody would have to say uh, ma- makes me cognizant of the fact that you better have something valuable for them to listen to. You're wasting their your time. So I agree. I agree.
1: Conceptually. What is a really simple way to explain that idea of the fact that the middle class is the wealthiest part of America so that at least some of the folks can get on board with that concept as we go forward in this conversation?
3: Um, I, I think what you're referring to is maybe something that I had uh, quoted which would, or uh, recited, which was uh, one of the Treasury um, uh, most of everything I do falls within 26, U.S. Code uh, 26, and, and it falls under something called a 1245 hodgepodge. And uh, just the other day I was speaking to a uh, uh, tax attorney, and, and they said, like most tax attorneys, can you sum it up real quick? Uh, that's, that's an impossible task. But I say we're looking at a 1245 hodgepodge, and, and right away I said, oh, I haven't heard about that in a long time. Um, but in, in the, I believe it's in the in – the, in the, uh, 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 code for a hodgepodge. It refers to the creation of wealth. And that, that's kind of interesting to, to read that, and that has to do with taxation and how you tax the creation of wealth and tax deferment and so on and so forth. So using that as, as a perspective, I'm saying what if, what if we uh, looked at any state and looked at the security instrument, for example, and what if, what if in fact, that security instrument had that party grant and convey their title, in, in, instead of uh, what we consider, consider a, a, a conventional mortgage, what if someone was actually granting and conveying title, putting it into trust, for example, and conveying the title uh, to a trustee where the, title, where the trustee is a fiduciary, not a, a third party incident to trust, but a fiduciary, and that fiduciary holds dominion over the asset which you contributed, which would be all the equity and title in that property? Uh, what was the consideration? You received for that, why was it not taxed? Why was it not disclosed to you? Um, and we talked a little bit about where, where I'm going with this, Is that maybe, in fact, that security deed was not a security deed, it was a, it was a transfer instrument or a, a deed, of, deed of conveyance, right? So now the question is, how much consideration is being exchanged on a tax-deferred or, or withheld basis, and what if that consideration is due you? That could be as much as the entire value of the note paid over 30 years, Plus the value of the title. Now you can see where I'm kind of, you know, we're, we're, we're uh, toying here with the concept or notion that the the consumer is not a borrower, but in fact uh, uh, some other uh, party to a transaction that right now is the uh, party in trust, the beneficiary of that trust. That's very really interesting, man. And, 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 and then think for me, I, I don't believe that you uh, uh, were familiar in your own uh, maybe experience with MERS but 90% of the people that do have uh, a mortgage that was uh, with MERS in it, it says that they appoint MERS as nominee, okay, for the beneficiary, for the beneficial interest, and that that includes the uh, beneficiaries, successors, and assigns. Well, the first logical question is, okay, this this guy's really going out there in left field, but wait a minute, since when in the history of mortgages has the, Has the borrower had to endorse or or nominate the uh, 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 beneficiary when the lender is the holder? Why would a a borrower have to nominate who that uh, beneficiary is or who the successor is going to be? That's handled by an assignment, and the courts tell you, don't worry about it. It's not your your business. So that beneficiary must be something else where you're nominating someone to represent your beneficial interest in a trust, and what is the net worth and value of that trust at, at any point in time?
1: You know, one of the questions that we talked about, and I'd like you to talk about here with the audience, is what was the thing that triggered you to notice back when you were doing all this bookkeeping and accounting? I mean, I think that your your record as a professional in accounting and banking is, is established. So, as a professional, what gave you a first clue that there was something strange going on that was happening beyond... The veil or the veneer of the overlying paperwork?
3: Well, for one, uh, an accountant or, or an attorney, a good accountant, that's an oxymoron, good attorney, but uh, the first thing you want to do is you want to look at the contract, the instrument. And uh, I found so few people have uh, done that. They've gone into court without ever looking at the contract they signed. If I'm going to grant and convey something to a third party as a fiduciary, and if I'm going to then be, uh, if, if, if there's been a servicer collecting and servicing my loan, wait, 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 something's wrong here. I granted and conveyed my title. In fact, I did it free of all liens and encumbrances according to the, to the contract. So why is the servicer calling me? You can't have the best of both worlds. Something has to give, and that fell under the old FAS 140, codified uh, SFAS 1403, and now ASC. 860, and those are the non-recognition principles and I said wait a minute, they're servicing loans and yet they're at the same time doing some kind of a conveyance into trust. You can't have the best of both worlds, there's something wrong here.
1: Did you also not mention the fact that you noticed that homeowners were getting 1099s which is a certification of receipt of payment of some kind where it was like, well if they're the borrower, why are they getting a 1099?
3: Well, yeah, absolutely. Uh, let, let's look at what happens in Las Vegas when you uh, put a quarter in a machine. All of a sudden you hit a, a, a million-dollar jackpot. Uh, You've got to go to the cage to collect your money. And before you collect your money, what are you going to sign? You know, what are they going to give you? give you a tax form, right? And right. That, that, is, that is to evidence the amount of money that you just received. So, okay, I'm coming back from Las Vegas, and I've got a trunk full of cash, and uh, I'm going to have to deal with my 1099, right? Unless they do the withholding right there. Now, now let's look at a, a person who just got foreclosed on. You know, wham, bam, thank you, goodbye, and here's your ten ninety nine. Whoa, whoa, whoa. ten ninety nine for what? What's the ten ninety nine for? What did I receive?
1: Well, in most cases, I think people would say it was a debt discharge.
3: Okay, and that would probably fall under uh, U.S. Code twenty six U.S. Code section 61, uh, 6181, which would be the cancellation of debt, and involuntary conversion of income. Now we open up uh, uh, the income question. That might answer and answer your question. Well, if, if you cancel the debt, there's going to be an involuntary conversion to income, and that income was attributed to who? You. And someone's saying, okay, well, show me the money. Uh, I got a 1099 that has uh, either 67000 and seventy thousand on it or seven hundred thousand on it. Where's the money?
1: And where is it?
3: Well, if you got a 1099 for seven hundred thousand, someone's going to say that well, you received seven hundred thousand dollars in value or consideration when you sold the house. When did I sell a house prior to sale? I mean, something's reversed here. Ah, oh, reversed, reversed, reverse repurchase and sale, and that's that's where your question is. How did I get interested in this? I'm familiar with the reverse purchase and sale for commercial assets, but I've always known you can't you can't you can't transcend or you can't cross that bridge onto single family property. It's impossible. Could they have? And them being the faceless czar, could someone have actually made the uh, decision to just go for it anyway? And do a reverse repurchase and sale, leaseback with, with with homes. Well, if they did that, it'd change the entire landscape of home ownership in the United States. And uh, you know, someone in someone in England right now would be listening, saying, "So what? God bless the Queen. <laughs> we don't live under a, a, a monarchy." Or maybe we do. But why should homeowners
1: start thinking about their mortgage loans as HELOC or reverse purchase mortgages? Or rental agreements with the bank. I mean, really, that's not what it says on the face of the original documents, is it? So why should they think that all of a sudden there's a separate deal going on, other than the one that they remembered signing?
3: There's, there's my frustration, and 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 as you can see, I'm, I'm calm, cool, and collected. I don't, I don't, I don't, you know, start beating the drum or anything. But you, you're you're accepting the fact that it could just that in theory we could have just actually grant and conveyed our title as it says verbatim, grant and convey title into trust to trustee. And if you did that, then why are, you at, why are you talking to me about a mortgage? Who has the mortgage? You just lost your title. Where's the mortgage? Or, or there is a mortgage, and guess what? Somebody else is the obligor, not you. Is that the case? If that's the case, you shouldn't be talking about a mortgage. You should be talking about your role as a right of reversion or a right as a surety because you're guaranteeing someone else's debt.
1: So is it true that homeowners were foreclosed? upon the day that they signed the note.
3: Interesting, interesting. Uh, actually, very astute uh, uh, insight there. Um, again, if if the act of granting and conveying title is occurring at the time of origination concurrently, or if it were to happen, it would happen within 180 days. There's a reason for that. So I'd say it's, it's pretty much uh, given that yeah, the title transfer in the first 180 days, now the question is, what role did that place you in, and why would you ever... Uh, if, you, if you were someone to say, okay, well, that's the way things are, I acknowledge that. Why would you ever want to... Uh, uh, why would you ever get a call from a mortgage servicer? What are they servicing?
1: That's a really wonderful
3: question that we're still pondering. Um, or, is it a land- or is it a landlord? Is it a landlord that's calling you saying your rent's due? and that, That's not accrued 30 days in arrear? arrear. That's, that's paid in advance.
1: All right. I think, uh, on one hand, you're suggesting that we conveyed title to them and that they're paying us in advance on a reverse purchase mortgage, and then somebody like a servicing company be allocating those exact same funds as the amount of rent that you need to pay for the place you're living in. Something like that, so that they're using the estates funds of the person, the woman, the man, um, as the source of the original funding, and then claiming it back as rent—is that—is that kind of like the circle jerk that's going on, or am I just not getting? Well, it? I think I
3: think I think that uh, if if you want to get a, a a legal first of all, I'm not an attorney and I can't give any legal advice. Nor, nor can you. We're just talking here in, in terms of uh, concept. I know what the numbers are going to read, and, and if that were the case, then. Uh, that you not only have a question of uh, are you really paying rent, is that servicer servicing rent, but who pays the taxes when you rent a property and who pays the utilities when you you rent a property? Um, uh, You know, it opens up a whole new slew of questions. And by the way, who takes the... uh, the 1098 uh, interest deductions uh, every year, why would someone have interest deductions if they're renting? It just it absolutely opens a whole Pandora's box of questions as to what the heck's going on. And, uh, if, and, and, and no harm, no foul, if nobody ever figures it out, just, you know, let them think what they think, and uh, that's where we might be. Are, are people uh, basically creatures of habit over the last 200 years paying mortgages like their mothers and their fathers and their grandfathers and their grandfathers did without ever questioning what, what's really going on?
1: So why should somebody not call out the frauds being found in a foreclosure case? I mean really, isn't it part of what you're actually telling us is that there's evidence of some intentional obfuscation to get the homeowner to abandon his money that he might be able to claim? And isn't that kind of fraud too?
3: Well again, you're you're obviously dialed in. I mean the 1099A we're talking about, the 1099 we're talking about is either 1099A for abandonment, which for the life of me, I've never seen up until recent years, or a 1099C, which is for the cancellation of debt, which, which typically would happen as a result of a bankruptcy. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a question of um, uh, if you're talking about a fraud, um, let's look at this for a minute. If the uh, transaction, and by the way, when you go into a, a tax court or you're, at, or you're held to an audit, uh, the, the tax uh, auditor is going to be, uh, what he is going to try or she is going to try and do is make a proper characterization of the transaction. It's so essential that you have a proper characterization of the transaction. So if you're going to sit there and plead that you don't owe a tax on one thing and they're looking at the transaction under a different set of rules, uh, the checkmate goes to the person playing chess, not, not playing poker. So it would be important that in the case of litigation that someone would first have the court establish what's the proper characterization of this transaction before we get going. Otherwise, you're playing poker and they're playing chess. And fraud would absolutely repudiate the claim of the the purpose of alleging a fraud. a tort law, is so so difficult. And I must respect those tax attorneys and tort tort attorneys. It's so difficult to. To, to try to understand how that, that, that branch of the law works. But um, in, in most civil fraud cases, uh, the uh, claim being brought by the consumer is that the lender has perpetrated a fraud in some way that is going to now relieve them of their obligation. But I just got done saying, if you're not the borrower, then are you perhaps the lender? And by going in and, and, and stating there's a fraud and, and waving a saber, you just repudiated <laughs> your entire claim. And the judge says, okay, goodbye, enough, next. It's a way out there concept, but it is, it is possible that repudiating a fraud not only nixes the lender's claim, but it just tossed your, uh, your claims and arguments out the window because you are the lender.
1: Right, but you know, as we spoke earlier this week, there's let's call it fraud one and fraud two. Okay, to help people understand, if you go and think that they committed a fraud with regards to properly getting all of the paperwork filed, even with the robo-signers, so that you had a proper claim. If you file fraud against that, then you're going to vitiate your claims uh, to your possible earnings. Um, If you claim fraud with respect to the obfuscation of the fact that you were owed the money, and that they tried to get you to believe that it was a different deal than what was really going on. That might be different, and that might not vitiate your clients. So it's it's about precision in in proper claiming, perhaps. What do you think?
3: You, you're absolutely right, and and that's something I really I could spend the whole show talking about. Uh, I I have I have. Uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of experts out there, and, and boy, oh, boy, I never saw him when I was in the secondary. I never saw him in the capital markets. And, uh, uh, you know, there's one that has a very, very large website, large following, and I still haven't sure. never seen or heard of him <laughs> to this day in the secondary, even though he, he says he was, uh, you know, uh, living, not lying, the, 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 the days of the secondary. But uh, I, I have been on the secondary, and I have traded, and I've traded over a billion dollars on my own with Course. And uh, I know what happens, if, for example, if uh, I'm going to sell a pool of uh, uh, $20 million to $25 million or $100 million, if I'm going to sell that pool, right, mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to have to have an uh, uh, assignment going to the creditor, who's going to be the party that's funding the loan for me, and I'll have a subsequent assignment going to the investor who I don't know yet is going to buy the loan. I funded the loans uncovered. I have someone that's been designated or given a, a power of attorney, and uh, it's the an exclusive power of attorney to sign all these instruments for me. And, and, and they usually do it with a scribble, okay? And that usually indicates that they have the power of attorney and they're signing it on my behalf. So here we got about 100 different robo-signers, uh, signatures, which, which doesn't really mean anything at all. But, but those uh, assignments should never surface beyond 180 days, and that's where perhaps there's a fraud. Uh, under any circumstances. But, but if the assignment of the mortgage is moot, if it's moot, why are we even bringing that up? Yes, it's a fraud. If it's not, a, if it's not a, a permitted in the industry and if, it's, if it is a fraud, how could it be a fraud if it's moot? Because the, the mortgage I'm claiming was divested and was never sold. So what would be the purpose of an assignment anyway, even if it was robo-signed or forged? All right,
1: so if, if the note was canceled from the very start, what is the purpose of the security instrument?
3: If the note the obligation the instrument was cancelled from the get-go, then you have conversion of that amount of obligation into income now now the question is if the note has a face value of two hundred and fifty thousand, did you receive two hundred and fifty thousand or was it was it was it paid out over installments over ten years at twenty five thousand or is a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar loan paid out over thirty years, seven hundred and fifty thousand, which one is it? So that, that that that's interesting too, but if you did cancel the instrument from the uh, point of origination through the 180 days, if they're going to attribute income to you, then um, there is no obligation, and, and you are being compensated. What are you being compensated for? You want to take a guess? Go ahead. You sold the house. You sold the house. So if you sold the property, then of course you're being compensated. You're being compensated over, on installments over the next 10 years. It would have been nice to know that because at the end of 10 years, okay, bye-bye. What do you mean, bye-bye? Well, you had a right of reversion. You didn't know it. Okay, well, what's my right of reversion? Well, we took 750000 on a $250,000 note. We amortized it down 250000 You had 500000 left, but the property is only worth one hundred seventy five. Sorry, bye. So, you know, is it compensation for the sale and transfer of the title, and was that tax deferred until the end of 10 years? It's starting to make sense if you really think about
1: it. Well, that's pretty mind-numbing just not the basis of that.
3: Um, well, I would look I at a 1099 that somebody receives. I would instantly divide it by, uh, there should be two numbers there. Sometimes you only have one number and a zero. But uh, if you take those, uh, the, the larger the number as a value, uh, I pretty much would take that and divide it by 30 years. And then I would back into a a rate using the original loan amount, and it usually comes out to about a market rate of five, five and a half, 4.4, 5.4, you know? So that makes the smaller number the uh, actual obligation plus what you really were in default or what you were uh, uh, in arrears. And then the other number would be the prepaid mortgage now for the next 30 years, and if that was the case... Guess who financed the property when the grantee paid the trustee to buy the property? Guess guess who financed it for the next 30 years? You did. You are the beneficiary. Now it starts to really make a lot of sense. So people that have uh, been foreclosed on uh, not only could have been the wealthiest folks in America at that time, but they suddenly now went back to the poor farm (laughs) because they abandoned their claim.
1: One of the things that a lot of folks are asking is, is the named lender on the note or the mortgage document, the real lender or just an intermediary or broker?
3: That's another, another great question. Um, if you look at uh, historically uh, how mortgage banking works or even question the MBA, you'll see that the holder is the party that is on the face of the note. They're the ones who made the loan. It's interesting from, from a perspective of law how the holder never holds the note because he's relying on his credit or a third party to provide the financing, Right. Mm-hmm. So if you got a third-party member bank that's providing the financing, that bank is going to always hold the collateral in advance of the money ever being wired. He's going to hold it. So what you have is the lender on the note who's a holder with without and uh, not holding anything, but it is the creditor who holds the collateral. But it's still the lender who has the right to enforce. People were talking about bifurcation early on in this, and, and I, was, I found that really amusing. But you do have a bifurcation of the uh, right to hold and the right to enforce. Uh, so, the lender, who that lender really is, uh, in essence, it, it was a seller from the day one. That's a seller from the very first moment. And that's really the proper way to, to uh, address uh, it. In, in litigation, I tell attorneys that's the proper way to address the party who's shown on the face of the note as a lender, they're a seller. Even even if it was a bank direct loan, it would be a seller with no warehouse loan. It would still be a seller. You know why?
1: Wait, no, hold on. So let's clarify. The seller means like the man or woman or family that sold you the house.
3: No, the party that's going to sell the obligation, sell the note in the secondary. Oh. You see, the collateral is the note and the security instrument and the file. And the seller is the party who originated the loan who's selling it to a third-party third-party investor.
1: Hold on, Meyer. Hold on. Let yeah, me ask yeah. you this. What if the seller sold it before you signed it? I mean, the language of the contract says that they have the right to sell it after you sign it. Mm-hmm. But what if they sold it before you signed it? That we'll would, on a, that would not be that would not compart with the language of the contract,
3: would it? I don't think they, they, they sold it on a forward, so I don't, I don't see what would be the problem. Yeah, they, they they sold you and your loan before you had ever originated. And on, one, on one hand, I'd say, so what, they sold it on a forward. On another hand, if if they were creating these loans that were uh, that were not what they were supposed to be and that there was a, a a scheme that was behind it that triggered a default in 10 years, then you'd have laying in wait, and, and that would be much more... A, much more problematic, but no, if you sell a loan on a forward, there's no big deal about that. Maybe to you, but in me and all but the if people... I can, if I can lock up, if I can, lock, if the prevailing rate right now is 5.5 and, and your neighbor's bragging about 5.5 and, and you locked up 4.5 and, and you haven't signed yet, I would hope they'd hold that, that, that signing table and the, that rate for me. You just locked it up 30 days in advance.
1: Well, that's just making a commitment to a rate that's not actually consummating the deal.
3: Right. Well, let me give you then the alternative. If, uh, if there's a construction uh, lender out there that's selling units and they're down to the last two units and they've already committed to, uh, you know, uh, satisfying their obligation with the creditor, uh, when they see you walking in, you're not really just a borrower and a buyer, are you? You're someone that they must close and they have to close and, and and now I'd go back and examine what kind of uh, sales uh, techniques and, and, and pressure was put on that party to close. Maybe if they weren't really uh, interested in buying.
1: You mentioned earlier um, a homeowner's reversionary right. Um, how could somebody claim their reversionary right as a homeowner, grantor, lender, whatever category
3: you feel they're in? Well, under 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 a uh, reverse purchase and sale. Um, you're selling the property, and you're leasing it back with a promise or a covenant that you're going to uh, lease it back, and at the end of the term, uh, you're going to then repurchase it. And uh, that's kind of the basis of an installment loan. When you start doing that with mortgages, here's your problem. If I'm going to charge you uh, a prevailing rate of 6.5 variable to start, all right, and, and then I'm going to have you repurchase it at, at, at what is equal to another five years premium. Uh, interest, on, on, on one hand, and then a repurchase price with a premium, that, that's a conflict. That, that's usury. And, and it would definitely uh, escape respite, escape everything if it wasn't, wasn't revealed. Um, if you're going to have a repurchase price, typically the person's making payments to amortize The balance of that, the installments are made to amortize the balance of the article that they purchased, and then the repurchase price would then maybe include a premium that would backdate all the interest that would have been due, you see? And now we're getting into that far—it's is it Farsi? I'm not sure, the Middle Eastern Muslim form of interest.
1: Right, uh, where you have simple fees as opposed to compound interest.
3: Uh, what I say is if somebody walks into a U.S. dealership to buy a BMW, they're going to maybe negotiate a price of 50000 and then say, can I get it financed? They'll say, yeah, let's go walk over to our, our finance guy. But you're buying the car at $50,000. Uh, if you're to do that maybe in Saudi Arabia, you'd say, uh, I'll buy the car. It's 50000 Can you finance it? It's 65000 It's that simple.
1: Right. It's a flat fee.
3: Right, right. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. You know, a price. It's pr- the capitalized, the capitalized, the actual interest cost uh, up front. Your APR and the cost is that capitalized up front. With mortgages, if you were to capitalize everything up front, you've seen the rest, but that could come up to two and a half, three times the value of the, of the, of the property. And that's what I think we're running into the problem here that they got caught doing that. They capitalized the value of that loan over the next 15 or 30 years, and you're paying for it up front.
1: So uh, you and I spoke. Quite at length about pre-programmed mathematical algorithms. Remember
3: that? Yeah, <laughs> yes, I do. But I, I am not yeah. the guru on that at all. I am going to say right now, if a foreclosure
1: is based upon a pre-programmed mathematical algorithm, and is not based upon a homeowner's performance under a contract, what would you call that?
3: I, I, would, I would rephrase that question. If, if, if the concept of being a mortgage lender includes all the upside and risk taken by the, uh, by the enterprise, then that risk can't be quantified. If, if you're going to go ahead and collect servicing for 15 years... On a borrower that never qualified, why do you think a rating agency is going to rate you A? And that's why the rating agencies came under so much flack. Why in the hell were the insurers insuring it because of the rating agencies? Why were the rating agencies rating a, a guy with no income a AAA, with very little credit? Well, probably because the loan was prepaid, you know, the obligation was prepaid for the next 15 years, and uh, that makes all the sense in the world now. There's no other logic for why these uh, uh, Dun and Brad. Uh, while your insurers were uh, rating these uh, AAA,
1: part of that Duffin, algorithm, Duffin,
3: Duffin Phelps, for example, go ahead.
1: Part of that algorithm that you were describing made it possible since Y two k know where that, you're going with that. That uh, they were able to turn 15 years into 31 years.
3: Yeah. Well, if you think of it um, this way, um, if we pick a date in the future and we can pick any date, like, for example, the day the stock market just stopped uh, for four hours, and we can explain why. If you take a benchmark like that and say party's over, everybody got a loan, and everybody bought their home on that date. So we have one mortgage that was all concluded on the same day. Now we're going in reverse, and that's what you said at the beginning of the program, where we foreclosed on the day we got the loan. Well, if everybody acquired their property in 2015, then that means that every origination would, would represent the, uh, the uh, I call it the reversion or the, uh, the um, uh, that repurchase that we were talking about. The words escape me. The uh, reversion would be the um, disposition. So the disposition, of, not the foreclosure, but the disposition of title was at every closing where every loan was made on the 7-8-2015. You see what I'm saying? Sure. So now, so now your computer model, is going to have to think in reverse, and which is not hard to do, and, and I don't know if it, if it requires algorithms, but you're going to now uh, basically master, manipulate uh, a, a 10-year or a 15-year program that could have dated back to Y2K. Yeah. Uh, for example, um, it, it's not, it, you know, it doesn't take a genius or an algorithm to figure out that uh, from, from, from Y2K to, let's say, the, the midpoint 630-2005, uh, It doesn't take a genius to figure out that 2007 days, 2007, and then if we go from 6.30 2005 to 7.08 2015, that's exactly 10 years to the mark, and we're still asking, why did the stock market close on that day for four hours?
1: You know, in part two of our show, we'll go into more detail about the algorithms um, being used against homeowners, but right now, could you go into just a little bit more general explanation? of what these things represent?
3: They're called timing devices. And if you look at the definition of a 10B-5 claim or uh, uh, an action brought by the Securities and Exchange Commission under 10B-5, it discusses the, uh, the uh, problematic issues uh, or the illegal uh, nature of, uh, of an act that would... That would be uh, part and parcel of something that was concealed, withheld, not disclosed, any artifices, any instrumentalities, any devices that were used in order to accomplish a future value and execute a trade that that was pretty much predetermined. That's a crime uh, under a 10B-5. And if you're going to do that, uh, you don't want to be uh, obvious in doing that. You want to have something that would trigger a servicer, then would be working under a reverse reverse servicing program that would trigger when they would now uh, when, when they would threaten foreclosure, and when they would offer modifications, and then when they would actually elect to actually execute a foreclosure. And when you start putting loans together that have gone into foreclosure, and you look at the timing and you do a comparison analysis, you say, okay, well that's. Ten years plus one—that's ten years plus six months. That's ten years plus uh, eighteen months. You know, it, it starts to—it starts to lay itself out as wow. This is—it's this is either really coincidental, or this is one magnificent, well-designed program. Um, and, and and these trigger events and these dates are all uh, apparently uh, timing devices that were used. That you're calling algorithms. Well, uh,
1: Meyer, one of the things that we, you and I went over in our in our vetting process before the show was you had me pop up an Excel spreadsheet, and I started Mm -hmm. numbers into boxes that came off of some of my own personal information. Mm -hmm. And you showed me how dates were being converted into dollars, and dollars were being converted into dates. And it was just fascinating. Uh, Obviously, on an Excel spreadsheet, they're in a cell on a spreadsheet, it's just a number, and it's always about how it's interpreted or expressed. And when you started showing me how you could flip-flop the interpretation of the number back and forth between a date and a dollar value, um, that really piqued my interest. You want to tell folks just a little bit about that? I think that should be something in detail we'll go into you know, in subsequent programs. But for today, just... I'm telling everybody, I found that completely fascinating. You want to tell them just a little bit about that?
3: If I, if I went into a court and testified and said that uh, if you zig and zag and, and do this and that and flip that number into this and, and, and look at where the numbers lay, the judge, after he's done yawning, is going to say, where does that bring us as far as the obligation that the borrower is obligated to pay? So you've got to keep it all in context. But, you know, it, it is interesting to see that... Um, uh, if you take, for example, uh, a 1099 and use that as a number, you could convert that to days, couldn't you? 1099 days. And uh, if you were then to take, uh, yeah. let's say, pick, pick another number, 911, what happens when you add 911 to 1099? Um, I, I don't have a calculator, but you know, folks at home maybe want to do that. Uh, add 911 to 1099, and then if you subtract uh, eight days yeah. from that, uh, you get another number, and I think you're going to come up with 2001, you're going to come up with 2009, and that seems to be the grid for where these loans were being booked and then these loans were starting to for, uh, foreclose. And certainly, 2009 was where Obama uh, did the amended Section 108, so that, that's one thing that's interesting, and it's not, it's not, it's not uh, I think, completely, um, uh, I don't think it's concealment in any way to know that every date you see on a Microsoft Excel spreadsheet represents a number I'm just looking at it, saying, "What if that date were in fact? What if the date were in fact uh, the annual installment or the number of payments made in a year? In other words, two thousand a month would be how much? Uh, Three thousand a month would be uh, four thousand a month would be forty-eight thousand dollars, right?" well, what if $48,000 equaled uh, 7 8, 2015 and that was the day the guy got foreclosed on? It's interesting and compelling to start looking at that, and, and, and that, that's not to, not to suggest in any way that the United States government or Bill Gates was behind any kind of scheme. I'm just saying it's interesting, and, 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 the, and the listener who's going to either uh, you know, prepare a case uh, may want to delve deeper into that and see if it applies to him, but so far it's, it's been pretty consistent, and it's, it's, it's an eye-opener. I agree. It's an eye-opener.
1: You know, recently uh, you you sent me a link to uh, a case, uh, the Groppner case, and I was wondering, yeah, G-R-A-U-P-N-E-R, um, does that provide any substance in support of this algorithm allegation or well,
3: anything? Well, yeah, 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 but I want to finish one thing up. When I said take 10, and you don't have a calculator there, do you agree? But when you take 1099 and you add it to 911, uh, you should get a year like 2008 or 9, I think. It's 2010. 2010, 2010, okay. And then if you subtract uh, uh, 9 from that, you get uh, 2001, right? Right. Okay, and then I said, well, 2001, I said take 1099 and take 911. 1099 just happens to be the code for a, a taxpayer form, right? And 911 just happens to be the code, uh, 26 9 happens to be the code for selling securities offshore to offshore investors, and certainly if you take 1099 minus the uh, 8, you get uh, 1091, right? And 1091, 1099 are your wash sale provisions where you were talking earlier about how do you convert mortgages, uh, payments into rent and rent into mortgage payments. And if that fall under 1091 for uh, wash sale provisions. So that's what gets to be really compelling. These numbers are not just numbers. They also link to the code. And that's not in any way to say that the Department of Treasury is behind any kind of scheme here. But who knows? Where, who, you know, who knows? The person designing this program, or if this is a patented program, if it is a copyrighted program, someone may have just not disclosed or let them let the others know he benefited from using the Treasury code as his basis for uh, for how he set up the uh, tracking modules. And then, and then the problem with the tracking module is, if a tracking module is used to count the days to foreclosure, then, then we got a real issue here. It's a program to fail. So now, and now you want to go into Grobner?
1: Um, yeah. Did you uh, did you have anything further to comment about Grobner?
3: Grobner Gr- was a uh, case that I testified in early on, and uh, people can look it up. It's under a website called Fear Not Legal. And uh, in the Grobner case, I found it interesting that that the uh, attorneys that came out to depose me for the uh, beneficiary, which I think was. I think it was Wells Fargo. The the, the counsel for the beneficiary was, um, uh, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, Uh, but they were one of the leading law firms in in CODI, and you know what that stands for, Cancellation of Debt and Involuntary Conversion of Income under Section 61A. And, And even then, what would their motivation be in deposing me on a foreclosure claim for a borrower? It's interesting that I had basically in my testimony written up, majority of that testimony was arguing that there's a violation of, that they didn't do anything illegal, that their foreclosure, though, may have been problematic in the fact that that you can't service a mortgage while you've converted the equity into title that you've transferred. It's a violation of the recognition rules and and non-recognition under uh, ASC 860 and back then FAS 140. So it's interesting that they had... Uh, uh, attorneys that were uh, deposing me, that also followed a, followed a motion in limine to, to strike everything the witness had to say as being worthless or having no no basis. It's interesting that they were that interested in defending the client, and that's what their specialty was. So I found that I found that uh, very interesting. Uh, the uh, the case actually was remanded um, back to uh, the trial court. And uh, the justice in that uh, opinion uh, stated that this appears to be, this is back in 2008, I think. And he says this appears to be what's going to be the beginning of a long road of uh, string of foreclosure defenses that we anticipate to come. It was early on. Um, but but it, it, something else interesting about that case is I remember, God bless the client uh, who wanted desperately for this to remand, it did. But I remember one day, and one of the days it was being deposed, uh, we were we were having a very... Uh, the deposition the, the, the was getting very deep into the questioning of how uh, uh, the non-recognition rules. Not when I say non-recognition rules, that says if you sell, if you sell me your Ferrari, okay, and we book that sale, you may have reportable income there. You may not, depending on what you sold it for and what you purchased it for, right? But the bottom line is, if you sold it and you're going to book that sale, uh, and you're going to record that with the IRS as a sale, you better not be driving the car the next day. Why in the world would you be driving the car if you sold it? Think about that. Uh, we had a case called Enron that had, to, had to, uh, was tried on that, and God knows where that case really ended up. But once you sell something, it's final. So um, that was what the uh, real thrust of my uh, Testimony was, and, and the poor client was sitting there kicking me under the table, saying, "But look at that robo signature! Look, look at the robo signature! Talk about the robo signature!" And I'm like, "Forget the robo signature!" You know, it's a much more, in, in a scale of uh, of uh, claims and arguments, this was a far more, more uh, uh, substantive argument as compared to the, the what she wanted to address as the obvious. And we're going back to what you said earlier: could could the obvious be bait that was just given to us, one that would fall for it? Who knows? But that was what was interesting to me about Groper and it did remand, and when it got back to the trial court, it was automatically kicked back out again.
1: You said earlier that you believe that home loans and foreclosures all belong in federal court, and state courts have no jurisdiction. Could you expound on that?
3: Uh, only to the extent as a layperson and, and that I'm not an attorney, I can't practice law, nor am I licensed to practice law. I can just testify in these cases as an accountant and as a, as a secondary capital markets person. So if there's a tax obligation that is owed, and if if uh, somebody received a 1099 for, let's say, uh, 700000 on one hand and, uh, and 500000 on the other hand, uh, if there's a tax obligation owed, then the tax obligation is going to drive that case, and that's something that the state would, would not hear. It's something that the federal jurisdiction would – it would uh, it'd be heard before a federal court. And if you don't bring that up, which most people don't, then it's going to be heard in a tax court when, when the 1099 gets to the IRS, and the IRS now wants their money. So it's going to end up either in a tax court after the foreclosure, or it should end up in a federal court prior to the foreclosure. So you're standing to bring a claim It's going to most likely be who is the payee and who is the payor, and what is the tax liability, and can that person, you, can you pay your own tax liability and receive this, this wealth that's sitting there that you're about to abandon? I mean, how insulting you're not only going to abandon your Wealth, but then you're going to pay a tax on it. That's the best kind of tax-deferred partnership I've ever seen, and that falls into what we call an abusive tax matter partnership.
1: There you go. What is your definition of an abusive tax matter partnership?
3: A scam. Uh, uh, it's a scheme or a scam a scheme that that basically uh, involves the uh, uh, registrants, the uh, principals, and then the uh, partners, either active or the passive and partners who are maybe involved in a pyramid or something. And the courts the courts say at the end of the day when these parties now have quarrels and, 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 and controversy amongst each other, it uh, falls under Perry pusu let, let them leave the court the way they entered, you know, steeped in fraud. <laughs> let them work it out themselves. The court doesn't want to be a party to it. So an t- abusive tax matter partnership can also be where someone was lured into a mortgage and then became a passive uh, investment partner, and that it could be that everything in that partnership, all the properties in that partnership were amortized to zero at the end of a period of 10 to 12 years, right? And that at that point, all the partners abandoned it, and, and that, that borrower is left standing alone as, as the uh, only remaining partner in that, that uh, venture, that partnership. Uh, and now that party doesn't know how to plead their proper claim, that would be, I think, an abusive tax matter partnership interest, and that would be something that would definitely. And and this is something that's defined by the, can you get a better definition through the FDIC website or or the IRS website? Look under uh, uh, abusive tax matter partnerships, uh, and and the IRS is quick to isolate them.
1: Um, Not a lot of the folks on the call are really up to date on their Latin. Um, Mm -hmm. Can you kind of like explain what para-pursue is?
3: Yeah, Dei Omni Omnipotentem, Beate Maria, Um Learning Latin was important back then. Um, per, Peripassu is, is something you're going to see with uh, intercreditor agreements, and you're going to often see not see the word contra accounts. Uh, a contra account. Is where uh, and, and you can see where a scheme. Uh, I, I just heard one the other day that involved PayPal. <laughs> but a contra account is where uh, the same party opens two accounts. One could be a depositor account with uh, with a uh, hundred thousand in it, and the other account could be uh, an opening balance of uh, one hundred dollars. And over the course of ten years, you're going to transfer money from one account to the other, to where you're going to see the the, uh, the outstanding balance go from the top value to zero, and the zero go to the top. And it's almost like two ships that would be passing through the night at, at midpoint, from, coming from Hawaii to the mainland and mainland to the Hawaii to Hawaii, right? Perry Pursuit would be uh, one one plane taking off from uh, back east to L.A. and the other one from L.A. to back east. Uh, you got two accounts and, and two. Uh, two uh, uh, measurements and consideration that are being depleted and, 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 uh, and accreted or uh, accumulated. And at the end of a period, you've basically uh, drained one and you've now uh, uh, restocked or recap- recapitalized the other. So um, those would be contract counts and pursu would mean they run with equal footing. That's actually what the Latin diff- I'm sorry, long, long-winded long diff- uh, question- answer. Yeah, Periposu would be uh, they'd run on equal footing and then when I say intercreditor agreements, it would have to be between a lender, a creditor, and the uh, the third-party investor.
1: All right. Do you see the concept of trying to get a free house being the act of the homeowner or the act of the banking system?
3: Ask that again. Ask that again. I'm trying to, I'm trying to really understand where you're coming from with that. In
1: other words, a lot of court cases, judges are going,
3: oh, we can't give these people
1: a free house. You know, there's a big mucky-muck about that. And, yeah. and equity judges are saying, well, you know, if there's a lender and somebody's owed money, we can't just, like, erase that and, and let these people have something Man. for nothing. What you're talking about in depth here is that there's way more going on than something for nothing, that there was a lot of something going on at various levels within the banking system that the homeowner-slash-borrower-slash-lender-slash-grantor was actually issuing on their own behalf, giving powers of attorney to other people, and allowing mm-hmm. them to go and manipulate their estate to accomplish certain things within the banking system that the homeowner didn't know.
3: I, I mean, and that's kind of like... Where watch, I, it, watch it when you say homeowner, because if they sold the house, not, the, rever, the reversion okay. right did not know. <laughs> okay. Or the renter did not know. Then let's use the word occupant. Household, right. How,
1: very good. Household, right. The occupant of the household.
3: Wait, which is Wall, Street does. Wall Street does. Wall Street calls these receivables. They never call them mortgages, and they refer to the party who's the borrower as the household. So that's an indication right there we're on the right track.
1: Right, which then goes back to the possibility of their reversion of their homestead claim. But, yeah, and so there's a lot of those things going on, especially if you've got a married couple or a family where only one party actually committed themselves to the paperwork, but the rest of them continue to have their homestead rights, and on and on and on. So going along with that, Who's trying to get a free house out of this thing? You know, I don't know yet. I mean, we're just getting into this, in this call, in our conversation, and we're hoping to discover more information as we go. So I'm asking these questions honestly and openly.
3: What do you think? Um, I put on a website uh, what I think the defense should be as I have over and over again as a lay person as a witness what I think the defense should be and someone said yeah go into court and try and get a judge to understand that well little that person know I've had my share of, of court cases and, and I tell you between, between Las Vegas shows and I was doing business in Las Vegas for quite a while when I was an investment bank between Las Vegas shows and court court, court cases I've appeared in I think I've seen the most dysfunctional things that one could ever see consistently. I don't know if I, if I, if I bring these with me into the court. But I do remember a case uh, where the, um, the uh, African-American uh, borrower was left the home and, uh, and had, had been, uh, whether she was induced or willingly, took this loan she couldn't afford for a few dollars of cash in her pocket. Was now about to lose that home, which had been in the family for 40 years. And, uh, well, you know, one of the things I was looking at in this case was a case that we'd had in Wisconsin. In the Wisconsin case, uh, they stayed the sale based on the argument that there was a, uh, that the the, uh, case should be heard for uh, uh, estoppel, promissory estoppel, uh, misjoinder of party and misjoinder of claims, and estoppel by latch. And and you know what estoppel by latch is. Uh, It's it's a timing device. So uh, I had mentioned that. Uh, to, to the borrower and, and I don't know why her attorney didn't show up to the case that day but they pled uh, a response that, that said that estoppel and latch now in that case the judge had uh, we'd gotten it early and we saw this judge who was very very uh, straightforward he nixed about four borrower uh, home claims he said sorry bye bye next bye bye next when we got up there and he said uh, he said ma'am and the woman was terrified you know I don't know where her attorney went she was terrified on her own Pro, say, proper. He said, ma'am, I, I, I saw your response. I'm going to tell you right now, I love it. I, am, I just love it. I read it a couple times last night. So there's, there's so much for judges not reading their, the, the, the pleadings. He says, how are you today? And <laughs> she was shocked. And, 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 and I'll just add a postscript to this. Deutsche, Deutsche Bank's uh, attorney was damn good she said, you know, I read that response, too, and that is from a judicial state. That is not a nonjudicial uh, response, and you've got to strike that. But he said, no, I'm going to leave it. I'm going to let it stand. And she said, no, 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 you have to strike it. And he said, no, I'm not. I'm going to let it stand. She said, let me, let me have a chance to argue. And he turned the microphone off, and he said, that's it. How many more homes are you going to steal? You come into this court with no file. You come into this court with no documentation. You come in with nothing but the same argument. He goes, this time you're going to go, bye-bye, excuse yourself. And she says, your honor. He says, goodbye. And uh, he looked at the borrower and he said, now let's Zoom. He says, where do you want to go with this, ma'am? And she says, I want my house. He says, "Ah, it's good, but you ain't going to get no house for free. Now let's talk because I'm going to move this over to another division. We're going to move this to trial, okay, and you'll have your chance there. So um, I know what you're saying when you say house for free and, 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 uh, uh, I would I would I would immediately object to that ever being said. But if somebody was given a mortgage and that mortgage was converted to ten years of income, and and that mortgage then is represented by a deposit account because the mortgage converted to equity, and that equity was used to buy the title. Well, then we have, like you said, a revert. That person standing there with the right of reversion for title that had already transferred, and the amount of income, which was. Which was amortized at the value of the note, Perry Pursue, over 10 years. That would now leave the value of the property at zero. So when the borrower, if a judge were to say, "Are you looking for a house for free?" I'd say, "Let's do the math and look at the general ledger. There's no basis in asset." Now, judges say, "You want to expand on that?" Say, "Well, if there's no basis in asset, we got a problem. Why? You still signed the note. You're still obligated. Why?" Well, b- because the good faith standard goes out the window if, in fact, the means and methods of getting where we are right now has, has reduced the balance to zero. And the problem I have, Your Honor, is that in order to foreclose, you need to reconstitute value. And that's a taxable event that's going to require a 1099. And I'm going to be left holding the, the bag on the 1099 and the tax liability. So they are foreclosing on zero, and that's the purpose of the 1099. That's to reconstitute the value that's been depleted or amortized down to zero.
1: But is it not true, or is it at least not possible, that the banking system is leveraging on Public Law seventy-three ten, where the federal government has, as trustee, control and ownership of all of the families' estates in America, and they're doing a drawdown. Against the credits that exist on the individual American people's accounts, with the U.S. as trustee, and then using those funds to purchase the properties from the people themselves.
3: Uh, what what you, you recited? What uh, what code did you recite there?
1: Uh, public Law uh, seventy-three ten.
3: Seventy-three ten. Um, you know, my my job. Is to show the court the general ledger, and and not point the finger or, 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 or uh, uh, necessarily make any uh, uh, allegations. Yeah. In theory, in theory, what you're saying it has merit. Um, uh, who who was the party that uh, benefited from the conversion? That's what really what you're saying. And where did that income? Where did that income go? Is that what you're saying? Where did the income go? What I'm trying to
1: ask you is, forget everything else I said if I could show you where the source of the funds were that the bank drew down upon in order to start the entire dominoes, right? Yep. Then the source of the funds is the ultimate creditor.
3: Who is and who would that be? That would be the uh, party that's being attributed that income. No, the
1: party that was debited that amount to allow the bank to use it under a power of attorney or under an um, uh, other kind of authorization within the mortgage note, it's just it's truly just trying to follow the money trail.
3: Okay? Well, take take it a step by step. If if the act of canceling the debt relieves the borrower of the obligation, then that debt was converted into income placed on deposit. Okay. But Meyer, mind the source of that money? Where did where the money on deposit come from?
1: Let me let me just make this really stupid simple. If you sign a piece of paper that <laughs> said I authorize Greg to help me buy this piece of real estate, and then within the terms of that contract, it also allows me to go and tap your savings account, and then I go and I take the money out of your savings account and I go and I buy this property and I then convert it into a loan to you. And right. You don't know that you actually gave me authorization to do that.
3: And where where where, where were you given the authorization in the loan documents or are you saying uh...
1: yeah because just like you said in the mortgage agreements and the in the deed of trust agreements they don't say what they really mean.
3: Well, well, they do. They, they do. If you read them literally, and, and, and I'll start. I'll start with: Are you talking about when you talk about debiting and crediting accounts? Are you talking about property? Whose property is that? And if you look at the security instrument under the property definition, what does it say? Transfer rights. So you, you are. You are basically yeah. You, you, you're signing something without understanding what you're really signing because your property is usually a, a, an address more commonly known as, and then a legal description. In that instrument, you're signing. It says transfer rights. So if you were duped or, or you just failed to read it, yeah, you, you would have been, you would have been uh, induced to sign something that gave them the right and power of attorney, you call it, or the power was given to a nominee who you appointed and the trustee then is allowed to do whatever he wants and on, your, on your behalf. And then you got to ask if, the, if that fiduciary really was operating as, as in trust uh, for you or, or if he was treating you as a counterparty and doing the best he could for his own client.
1: Can it ever be lawful
3: to use
1: your money... So loan it back to you, um,
3: if if the if the property you purchase was, was and this is a good question, okay, and I know I know we're going to eventually merge here with where you want to go because we're, we're 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 getting close. If the value of the mortgage was uh, was uh, capitalized, converted, if it was if it was canceled and converted to equity, at that it, point at that point that borrower owns the home free and clear and that's a very vulnerable position for a lender to be in. Uh, but uh, if you cancel someone's mortgage, then, then they have no obligation and they're still on title. But if that mortgage was canceled and, and it was attributed to them as income and that the title transferred because of that, then that income is be Yes, I would hope that income would be used to buy it back. So if at the end of 10 years that party's income was equal to the note, they just got done paying off their note, is what I'm saying, and they would then have a right to their title, free and clear.
1: Right, but that's the part that you suggested earlier in the call, that folks are leaving on the table and abandoning, right?
3: Well, in theory, you've got to ask yourself, the, the, um, the, the, numbers, the numbers do indicate that somebody had to abandon something, and, and yes, yes, if, uh, somebody, if somebody is sitting on title, free and clear, and they have the right of reversion, then what would their buyback be? How can you have a buyback if something's free and clear? Think about it. Well, nothing's free and clear without being taxed. So their their cost of reversion would be here's my tax money, and I don't think anybody would be unwilling to walk into a court with twenty five or thirty or sixty thousand dollars to have a house for two hundred fifty or three hundred fifty, uh, you know. And now theirs, you're basically buying the house for the value of the tax. And since you're not paying that tax, guess who's paying it for you? Well, the parties who are behind the scenes, the the wizard, whoever it is, he's paying your tax for you, and that's what he's ten to ninety nine on you for. So yes, they did, they could, and they would, but to have to do to take your money and to do what you're saying they did, it would have to still be done legally, and that would be that party would have to pay the tax on what they quote stole or what they took.
1: <laughs> hey Meyer, I just realized we've been into this for about an hour and fifteen minutes. That's I'm
3: sorry, a- if I I'm sorry if I didn't address that question right, but we'll get back to it, all right.
1: No, I think that's great, and we can cover more questions, plus the uh, Q&A portion. I thought it was just you and me
3: tonight, all right? got some people
1: listening. You've got everyone across America. If you're okay with taking a break right now, let's just take a two-minute break and let everybody gather their thoughts and uh, refresh themselves, and we can come right back um, after a couple minutes uh, for the uh, live question-and-answer portion of the show. Uh, With our wonderful guest, uh, former capital and secondary market CEO, accountant, banker, and investor, Mr. Uh, Meyer Solomon. Are you
3: good with that, Meyer? Yeah, I'm fine. Sure.
1: All right. So uh, we're going to mute up and uh, put on some music, and we'll be right back.
2: Welcome to the Gallant Goose and Friends, a weekly production of the Gallant Goose Radio Network, airing live from coast to coast and around the world. On Thursday nights at 645 Eastern here on talkshoot.com, program number one three nine three three five. This is your MC and musical tour guide, Big Papa Stanley, reminding y'all when it comes to saving your house, don't let the bank of blues stop you from getting all your clues. The primary focus of this interactive program is to discuss mortgage, foreclosure, defense, and attack strategies and related homeowner issues with our guests and callers. We come to you from the birthplace of the American Bar Association and the home of Abraham Lincoln, Al Capone, the Untouchables, and Operation Greylord, where the motto is, vote early, vote often, and according to some politicians, even when you're dead. Here you'll find general information about home loans and ownership, notes and mortgages, as well as pointers on lenders, banks, funding, securitization, regulations, titles, credit damage, and more, plus different forms of resolution when things go wrong between homeowners and lenders, including RESPA, FDCPA, and Tiller Rescission. With the help of our guest, We'll try and find general answers to your questions on these and other popular topics. Now please remember, this program is for general information only. No official advice regarding accounting, law, taxes, or other regulated services given here. If you need a lawyer or accountant, please hire one authorized to work in your state.
4: Can't get it going. You can't get back to your feet By the summer you're thinking Man is heading next to bed But all day long you just Can't get my voice out
2: of your head We thank y'all For being here tonight Let's try and help each other Welcome back
1: everybody To the Gallagose and Friends If you're just tuning in, we're here with our guest, former capital and secondary market CEO, accountant, banker, and investor, Meyer Solomon. Meyer, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. As a reminder to our callers to ask a question, please press star 8 on your phone to raise your hand and to be put into the queue. Once you've been unmuted, uh, please say your name. And where you're calling from and what your question is. And if you get got a noisy background, you can always mute yourself out after you ask your question by pressing star 6 on your phone. Also, everybody, please don't use speaker phones as this frequently causes feedback. And we will have to cut you off. Okay. Caller number one from Central Illinois. Welcome to the show.
5: Hi, boys. This is Cat. Just wanted to let you know it was a great show tonight. And say hello to an old friend that I've always said sounded so much like my attorney. And how you doing, Mayor? I'm doing great. Um, you and Greg play very nicely together. You've improved a lot over the years, young man.
3: <laughs> and
5: I'm gonna leave it at that and leave the questioning to the rest of you folks well, because I well am sweet of you. Thank All right. You boys take care. Have a great night. Bye.
3: Bye
1: Bye-bye. Oh, thank you very much. Going down the list, Southern California. Hello, Southern California. You're on the call. Please tell us your name and what your question is, please.
0: Yes, my name is um, Audrey Vatan. And the question is, okay, um, can they foreclose on a house if they don't own the original note, but they only have a photocopy of it?
1: It sounded like, can they foreclose on a mortgage if they only have a photocopy of the note and they can't find the original? Is that right?
3: Yes. If if this was asked of me, of an attorney, I would quickly point out that that note was canceled and the 1099 is to reconstitute the value. A canceled note should be destroyed. It should not ever appear again. When when they bring in a copy of the note, they being the opposition, they are trying to show the judge that you signed the note in good faith. But that note has no value. There's no integrity. It's a it's a it's a, a an instrument that has been canceled and should have been destroyed. There's no reason, and it's a violation of ASC 860, in my opinion, as an accountant, to bring that in. It, it has no value. So it's a moot question, actually, because the note has been canceled, and uh, yeah, no one trying
0: has. To... They're trying to foreclose on my house up in 29 Palms. I haven't paid anything for seven years. Uh, I've been fighting with the Nation Star, who's the loan servicer. And Bank of America, you know, the first Franklin bank went bankrupt in 2008. And it was all just MERS and stuff, and they no longer. And then, of course, the assignment deed of trust went over to U.S. Bank and Bank of America and, and LaSalle Bank and Lynch, and so on. But they don't have the actual cert, uh, there is no copy of no note. They only have their copy of the note.
3: No. no. Uh, as, as we were talking earlier, if they're going to set up a deposit account, and the question was, are they entitled to, to act on your behalf and with, make the withdrawals, all of that is not possible if you don't cancel the note. So the note was actually canceled. And you brought up all those different players. Maybe, Greg, you're saving that for another show. But each one of those players is important to identify what their role is. But they're all they're all participating in the uh, in the uh, taking of that consideration, and that has to do with the fact that the note was canceled. Go ahead.
0: So how can I um, how can I stop them from uh, trying to steal my home? That's just been an awful fight with me with them.
3: You see, you see, one of the things that we're going to have to really, really work on is the fact that if you're going to take up the uh, argument and what I'm saying, the home was, as you say, I'll say conveyed. You say stolen. It was conveyed the day you signed and got the loan. So they're not stealing your home necessarily, unless you're saying that they're now perfecting title after taking title in the date of the origination. And what you're really claiming here is that the proper characterization of this transaction must be revealed to the court before the court hears any arguments. And I don't know if that's on a tree. I don't know if that'd be done in a motion or a more definitive statement or what. But you really, you really got to get the court to. Uh, 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 reject the claim of a ben- whether or not the beneficiary is, is who he is and entitled he has to bring the claim in the proper jurisdiction and proper venue and, and proper argument and, and that's called proper characterization of the transaction under the IRS code
1: alright now I think that that is a very important point that we cannot spend too much time on alright mm-hmm. just for everybody listening
0: is there a code number on that? Is there um, uh, California code on that or something or?
3: It's a valid question, Greg. But that is what she needs to do. she needs to discuss. That. She she wants to uh, she wants to get the court and she wants to be on a, a level playing field before the before the case starts.
1: Ma'am, listen to this phrase: okay. the proper characterization of the transaction got that? The proper characterization of the transaction. They come into a foreclosure case alleging that the characterization of the transaction is something that your grandfather did. But what they did was created a a completely different characterization of a transaction in the modern money marketing world, which has nothing to do with that. But judges will always go back to grandpa's mortgage and think about it like that until you let them know that you know that this is not your grandfather's mortgage. And when you can be smart enough to bring the proper claim with the proper evidence, I think that's where we're going here, right? Then mm-hmm, yes. and Then you can shift the entire court from one of a foreclosure to one where I'm still not quite certain how you would... How but you she's going
3: to make a claim based on a right of reversion and being denied that uh, they're obstructing her right of reversion and they're actually in- inducing a tax liability unjustly by bringing the note in. There you go. There you go. You follow that?
1: So um, yeah not quite sure.
3: Okay. That the, the, so the note should be moved, well, and that the that the, uh, no, the proper transaction no. is going to be the reconstituting value is what I'm saying, Greg.
1: You know, you run with it, man. You're you're the guest. I'm just trying no. to help. I'm just trying to help sort stuff out.
3: Yeah, and
0: so you Greg, that, just, they, you say say Greg, Greg, the house and then do another loan on the on the, on the new price value of the house, maybe.
3: Um, what, what 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 you're dealing with here is the note number one. If the note gets canceled then you are being attributed income, and that, that income was paid to you, and it's part of what you call your right of reversion. You're, you're the party who has the right to repurchase it, and that's where you want to talk about what's your basis. What's your basis currently in the property, and what's the appraised value? And Greg, will talk about it later, but there's a big difference between the value and the basis and you want to exercise your right to repurchase, and you want to take care of your own tax liability. You don't want to have someone pay it for you. So the, the note, back to where we started, is a moot point. It, it, it has to do with how do we characterize a transaction where the note was canceled. It's called CODI. Charlie, Oscar, David, uh, uh, Ice, uh, Igloo. Uh.
0: CODI.
3: Look that up. Sixty one sixty one,
1: uh, uh twenty six US code sixty one. Okay, uh Southern California. Again, if uh you'd like to get in touch with our guest, please email the host at thegalicus at gmail dot com and put the information for this call. Where, what is your
3: email? Greg, what is your email again?
1: T A G G-A-L-L-A-N-T-G-O-O-S-E at gmail.com. Gallant Goose, okay. The Gallant Goose at gmail.com. Very good. Very good. Everybody on the call, if you want to get a hold of anybody else that's been on the call, as we often say, please contact us, and we will provide privacy for everyone involved so that we will introduce you back and forth to the people that you'd like to communicate with. All right? And that way you don't have to say your name and your email out loud on the show and have 100,000 people have access to it. All right? Um, Anyway, uh, we have a question typed in here from guest number four. Do you have any tips for someone facing eviction next week? Oh, of course, next week. Who has a federal suit for fraud filed but can't get a stay? And then follows up with, does revoking a power of attorney help? If so, when should it be done? I mean, that was a series of three questions from guest number four. Um, Meyer, I throw that at you. Go ahead.
3: Yeah, it's it's, it's late in the game, and, and, and you know, you're uh, one foot's out the door. Um, I, I have... I have testified recently in cases or pre-pre litigation where we raised. I mean, I want to be very careful how I say this, but we raised the argument that if the party foreclosing is going to be allowed uh, allowed to proceed, then we need uh, an acknowledgement that they would they would be accountable for any tax liability that's going to be assessed to that person who's being evicted, because the tax liability would not kick in until they're gone. So if they're willing to take in the accountability for materially misstating the transaction as, as a mortgage and then an eviction, um, I, I would raise that that you want to hold them accountable for uh, at the time of the eviction for anything that's discovered afterwards, post, post-eviction discovery that, they, uh, that, that prevailed you from having due process or prevailed you from exercising your right because you didn't know what the proper characterization was till, till it was too late. And that sometimes we get the law firm that's handling the eviction to back off and say, okay, now we've got to think, rethink this through. You need them to be accountable for what's going to happen post, post-eviction, post post-foreclosure. And again, we go back to
1: that phrase, properly or improperly stating the characterization of the transaction.
3: I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Um, You know, here's where you got to. You got to just ask yourself: um, from the date of of Y2K to the date of the loan, we got 2,007 days. All right. From from and the loan was in 2006. So whether this is numerology or whatever, we have 2,000 days to the date of the Y2K to the date of the uh, origination, and the 2,007 to me represents the 12 months aging they need before it goes into quote trust, right? And then, and then we have um, uh, a foreclosure that takes place uh, over a sequence of days on, on 11-1, 2012. Um, the uh, eviction takes place. The eviction takes place on September 5, 2013. So the foreclosures in 11-1, 2012. The evictions uh, 9-5, 2013. And I, I, if my dates are right, I think it came out to 309 days. 309 days from the date of the sale to the date of the eviction. 309 times uh, $1,000 a day would equal 309000 right? Okay, where am I going with this? Well, the, the trustee's deed upon sales that the grantee paid $309,000. That means that the grantee paid an amount at sale that was, was going to be accrued from the time the, the, the property went to sale to the time the party was evicted, and that means that the sheriff was enforcing a, 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 an entirely different uh, lease agreement or understanding that had nothing to do with the original you know, uh, uh, party's right to uh, uh, remove any uh, 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 holdovers. So was it a coincidence they foreclosed and they evicted 309 days later at a $309,000 uh, sale price, and that would equal a $1,000 bond per day? I don't know. I don't know. So it's all, but, all linked. Yeah, but those are the kinds of
1: things that you've been investigating as a numbers guy. And That's
3: right. That's right. So, 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 but Greg, if if they if they foreclose on zero, it only makes sense they're going to have to establish a price to purchase it at, and they establish a the price to purchase it at at the date they're going to evict somebody, and that is that is just unethical, in my opinion. And its user is going to consider that person's paying a rent for $1,000 a day after post-sale. Well, I mean, and just generally speaking,
1: as we suggested earlier, is it not possible to make a claim that, you were, that your due process rights were violated if a foreclosure was instituted by virtue of some mathematical algorithm and was predestined before you even got there? All right, And yeah. you
3: didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. Well, one one of the things I think now I, th- I think I'm starting to have a little more clarity. One of the things that I would really, really that intrigues me and along the lines of what you're saying is what happens when someone's given a loan and then that lender or another lender comes back and says, have we got a deal for you? And you got a first and a second. They're going to consolidate it now a year later. And what if it turns out that consolidation loan was by a party that merged with the original lender they paid off? Ugh, now you got a real, real contentious argument that something was going on and someone was uh, actually laying in wait to make you that second loan that perhaps was part of the first loan's intention. You see yeah. what I'm saying? That's where it gets really nasty. So you got countrywide that was selling to uh, uh, Greenpoint, and Greenpoint that was selling to IndyMac, and IndyMac and Greenpoint selling to B of A, and, and B of A buys Countrywide. That is a little too incestual for me. Okay, and that that now gets into what we call phantom funding. Did that HUD one really fund? Was there any was there any consideration in the second round of financing, or even the first? And was that amount that was supposed to be paid off? carried back and converted into stock and then made part of a merger and acquisition. That's called stepped financing, and that's what concerns me.
1: Right, and in our next episode, we'll go deeper into the HUD-1 versus wire transfers and, and proof of payment. But, but as you can
3: see, there's, there's, there could be some proof there that if they foreclosing on zero, in this particular case, I was an administrator for the estate. If they foreclosed on zero, like I think they did, they had to set some prices what the grantee paid to trustee, and that price just happens to be 309309 309 days, days, $1,000 a bond. It was very interesting.
1: Right. And as I said, I was pretty fascinated with uh, some of the mathematical relationships that we uncovered when we were just playing around with my numbers. Um, yeah,
3: yeah, yours, yours, yours actually took on a whole new set of uh, a, a discovery set after we were done, but that was interesting. We we'll talk about that later too,
1: right? Um, yeah, but you know, you know, episode two, episode three, we can go into more depth on that. Um, and I don't. Wait, well, you know, make- I, I
3: I I would like to bring up something that I think you'll find fascinating too. The um, the case that I was the administrator on. It, in this case, when they moved to the eviction, you know, they have to provide service, right, to everybody. <laughs> And, and the reason I was an administrator is because one of the borrowers had died. The wife had died. And the claim I was raising as the administrator was, you guys are processing service to the decedent. You issued a 1099 to the decedent that said the estate of, which means she's passed. But you're also issuing an unlawful detainer to the decedent. And the attorney's response was, she was alive when we served her. And I said, ma'am, are you serious? She died in 2011, and you're processing an eviction in 2013? She was alive when we served her. One of, the par- one of the parties that was living in the home was a doctor, and he said, I don't believe you, and I want to talk to this attorney. And the attorney said to the doctor, she was alive when we served her. What was that attorney saying? Because she wasn't lying. She wasn't lying, and I think she was operating under uh, the reverse purchase and sale understanding where everything is reversed, reverse, and that's what I think was happening there.
1: In other words, everything was served at the beginning.
3: <laughs> yeah, it was all served at the beginning, and, and, the, and the doctor is saying, I'm a physician. Are you going to continue to lie? And she said, I'm not lying. The person was served, okay? And that attorney was revealing something, whether that's a mea culpa or whatever. She was revealing something, and she was standing ground, you know?
1: That is a remarkable insight right there that is plenty of
3: them plenty
1: of them i've seen it all i've seen it all I <laughs> guess thirteen and fourteen I think they're the same party. please ask if there's any solution for those of us who already lost our home in twenty twelve
3: if 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 there's a statute of limitation i would I would look and talk to an attorney about a ten b five if somebody in the example I just gave you is is, is, is uh, foreclosing at zero and using 309 days to reconstitute value, they not only went to sale in advance of the uh, amount being accrued, but that had to do with a security. So the, the liquidation of a security at sale and then the uh, capitalization of another security at eviction would fall under a 10B5. You as the investor, you as a party to that securities transaction, would have an eight-year statute of limitations starting from the day of discovery. So I would say you got a long time ahead of you as far as the statute of limitations go if you bring a security claim.
1: Well, I hope that helps you there, uh, guess 15 or 14. Um, 10B5, uh, is she needs to look up. Okay, um, everybody on the board, uh, again, press star 8 to raise your hand. We are delighted to have listeners all across the country. This is a wonderful call. New York, you're next up. Go ahead. Hello, New York. Please say your name and your question.
5: Hi, my name is Lauren. My question is this. You are both talking about, you know, who's the borrower and who's the bank in this situation. And um, I think we might have heard that Mayer is a good guy in all this. To register the property, however, I have sitting in front of me how the security agreement I have, which is about um, 16 pages long, just like the mortgage that you sign, basically says the security agreement has amended, supplemented, or modified from time to time. This security <laughs> agreement is dated. And then it goes on to say between Mortgage Electronic Registration Systems, the Delaware Corporation, the borrower, and Nations Bank, N.A., and National Banking Association, the bank. So when they transfer it to mayors, mayors then becomes the borrower.
3: That's right. It's representing your interest. You nominated it as a beneficiary, and, and you're the beneficiary of that trust that holds the assets under the dominion of its trustee, which is a fiduciary. That, that's who's representing your interests, MERS.
5: However, I also have um, designation of registered agent and registered office for alien business organized for foreign corporations. MERS is as, uh, registered in Florida as being a Delaware corporation, and it says the filing of this alien business organization form with the Florida Department of State does not authorize the above-reference entity to transact business in the state of Florida. So how is that possible that they are getting all these properties transferred to them?
3: The, um, if you could, the, the, the partnership, uh, the, the general partners are formed in an LLC in, in Delaware, so, most of the jurisdiction would fall under delaware the 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 articles or the issues of trust that uh deal with the formation or construction of the trust and and the, and the, and the uh, um, uh, maybe the liquidation of trust assets would fall under the jurisdiction of New York or the new york supreme court um, the The passive investors represented by MERS i think is not a real issue i, I don 't i think you're reading too much into it because MERS represents the passive investors that, that are responsible for receiving the income that was paid back in as, as rents that were attributed to something else. So I don't know if that would necessarily be... There may be some... Uh, there may be a technical uh, question of the legality of it, but it's just so low on the totem pole compared to what's really happening and in, in, in what MERS is really doing. And that is, you're uh, uh, representing you and you're failing to state a claim under the nominee who you appointed so you wouldn't want to nix Merce's ability or standing. You'd want to embrace the standing under any condition, but, but make it known that you are represented by that, by that entity as the beneficiary and that you are the beneficiary who appointed it, not one of the same with a mortgage lender as a beneficiary.
1: So basically uh, you're asking them to, you're trying to enforce their duty, their fiduciary duty, to protect your butt.
3: And again, we're attacking that, which is good. She's very good to isolate that kind of uh, minutiae, but she's right. But at the same time, they want us to attack MERS, but MERS is representing us as a nominee. And that nominee is for one sole purpose, and that is to do the last transfer sale and exchange, which is your right of reversion. They're going to do that, and that's a taxable event. And MERS is begging you, please, this is your last chance. Step up, step up, or you're going to lose it. Yeah, and I don't think
5: people really look at it that way because there's so many, uh, there's been so much controversy over it because it's kind of like a shadow registration, and it's Uh, registering all these notes that have been discarded and burned.
3: Lauren, are you the one? This, this may be. If you're the Lauren I'm thinking of, were you the one that sent me a couple of uh, trusts that were 1099 trusts?
5: No,
3: that wasn't me, babe. Somebody sent me. Uh, they said, "What are these? What are these?" And they showed. I think it was a, a, a Smith Barney trust. and It was a 1099 trust. Your, 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 pool, your relationship to the pooling and servicing has nothing to do with the pooling and servicing agreements you're seeing. Those are commercial assets. You are the income that's being paid into those pooling and servicing agreements that constitute the rent. And those, those, those assets are not one of the same with, with, with your mortgage. You're the rent. On those commercial assets, so um, uh, MERS as a beneficiary is representing your interest as a payee, and as a payor, and as a rentor. And it gets pretty, 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 pretty complicated there, where you need to really identify what's the proper characterization of the transaction before the court proceeds.
5: Hmm.
3: Your rent, when they cancel, if they cancel that note, then all you are is is income, and that income is now converted to rent, and that rent's being paid to somebody else, like. Bank of New York or U.S. Bank, uh, like the other woman said, usually it's being paid to, uh, for bad bank assets that were held as REOs.
5: Very interesting.
3: It it's is. Just, it's fascinating. Like, it's We haven't gotten into the reason why this is all happening. There has to be a big motivation behind it, and that has to do with cleaning the bank's balance sheets over the last 10 years. We can get into that more in
1: part two and part three of the show.
3: But I would not. I would not. I would try to find a way to embrace mercy being your last legal right and standing to bring a claim, and, and that, that that claim is for something you've now satisfied by virtue of them canceling the debt under sixty one and one hundred eight, section sixty one and one hundred eight. Uh-huh. Don't, don't go 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 against public uh, sentiment and what the public's saying, what the blogs say. Embrace everything they're attacking, and you're going to find yourself in a much better position because the judges are prepared to uh, deny you whatever attack you bring. They're not prepared to hear you say, "I looked at all the documents, and I believe they all have integrity, and I embrace the nominee." And and by the way, a nominee is used for one and one only one purpose. Come on, a nominee is used for. Uh, 1031 exchanges or to represent Donald Trump Who uh, Donald Trump's going to buy a property for his daughter going to college he's not going to put his name on it he doesn't want anyone to know it he's going to use a nominee but once it records it'll be in his name but he doesn't want to know anyone because in the transaction someone may try to gouge him for much more than it's worth it, it, it's, it's used to conceal the wealthy uh, participants so uh, in, in a typical Beverly Hills mansion uh, transaction, you're not going to know it's Rod Stewart until the sale's been finalized. He's going to have a nominee. That's all a nominee is.
1: All right, New York, I hope that that was helpful. And once again, if you've got specific questions that you would like to ask, Meyer, um, you can transmit them through Goose at gmail.com, and we will transmit your questions over to Meyer and with your email all righty. Good question. I, I think we had another uh, typed-in question here. Does revoking a power of attorney help, and if so, when should it be done?
3: I'm missing something here, and maybe maybe it's the fog of war or whatever. But uh, where, where's this power of attorney coming up, and, and where's the POA coming up?
1: There's a presumption of uh, trusteeship and powers of attorney in all of these uh, mortgage documents at the origination to allow people. To allow the other people on the deal to act on your behalf and copy and paste your signature as Let's a power see. of, it, like MERS in your acting on your behalf, like that. Okay, I,
3: I, I think the bigger question is uh, uh, the, what you call a power of attorney are the rights and, and entitlements that you bestow on the general partners when you buy into a when you buy partnership shares when you buy into a partnership. Uh, an LLC and you're a passive investor, you, you, they, they, they have the right to do whatever they want with your account, and, and that's what we're talking about. Now, the real question is, how come I never got a private placement memorandum, and if I'm not an accredited investor, which means I have a million-dollar net worth, how was I able to be a participant in this unless you gave me a million-dollar net worth? How was I allowed to give you the authority to trade and transact on my behalf when, in fact, I'm an investor in a partnership and I'm not a mortgagee or a, mar- a mortgagor? That's a real question. So a partnership has the ability to do whatever they want uh, uh, if you're a passive investor. That reminds me of something that... Uh, passive means you have no say in any decisions. You just go along for the ride and hope you've got a yield. And you're in bed with some of the wealthiest businessmen in the world that have generated huge returns, and we're going in and crying fraud, and we're alienating ourselves and and repudiating our claims when we're in bed with some of the richest people in the world. Don't attack the Illuminati until you realize you're in bed with them and they're taking you for the ride. (laughs) For a ride, not not Anyway, you know what I'm saying. Right. It reminds
1: me of a comment that a friend of mine made with respect to um, certain kind of restricted properties in New York. Where they have rent control and all kinds of things. But you can can actually purchase an interest in an apartment building without any guarantee of getting an apartment. (laughs) Yeah,
3: you're
1: going to see more and more of this. And, you know, you just... And you've got no... There's no dividends for your investment. There's only costs. And and
3: And, by the the way, just... Not to, I'm sorry to interrupt you but that's the word when you're converted when your notes converted from debt to income you're converted into a dividend go ahead I'm sorry anyway um we're
1: running short on time so uh California has their hand up let's uh welcome hello California you're on the call hello. please tell please tell us your name and what your question is for mayor
0: hi my name is Mariko. MARIKO okay and um, right. I, um, my head is spinning, actually, but um, I understand that um, the note is get, was canceled yes, when yes. we um, signed so-called loan. Um, but if that's um, true, what happens to the title? <coughs>
3: the well, if, when, when you pay a loan off down to zero, what, what do you tear up? You tear up the deed, and the title transfers now to you, right? Yes. So so what they're doing is they're canceling the note, which relieves you of the obligation, which says you sold their house, so they transfer title to themselves. So if you go back and look at your instrument, the deed in California says it's granted and conveyed title free of all liens and encumbrances, and they took the title. Under the transfer rights and property, they took your title. Now that puts you in a position of making payments to do what? Buy it back
0: um but this was actually a refinance
3: yeah but the deed is going to say under, under look under the, the, I'm asking you to go look under the well, deed we do look have under a-
0: Go ahead
3: sorry look under the definition for prior first a through Q it'll have proper definitions look under property and under definition it should have either the address more commonly known as or it'll have something that says transfer rights in property that right there says that you acknowledge that you've just transferred the equitable and legal title in the property
0: oh so you were talking about deed of trust that we have deed
3: of trust yeah the deed of trust okay. I, I call the deed of trust a, a, deed of, a deed of conveyance it's a deed of conveyance.
0: Okay, so that since we signed it, even if it, there's no record at the recorder's or county recorder's office,
3: mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well, it's been if, if transferred. If you, if you grant and convey the title free of all liens and encumbrances, that pretty much says it right there. They, they stripped the, strip the lien of the property, they canceled the obligation, and you transfer the title. That says they compensated you. Now, are they compensating you the value of the note or the value of the note and the deed? And that's the problem. If they're not reconstituting at the time of foreclosure, that means they're double charging you, and that's what needs to be brought up. So um, you granted and conveyed title free of all liens and encumbrances, but subject to the existing lien or record. So they're carrying back the existing lien that your HUD-1 says you paid off. How can there be an existing lien? That's that's the real issues you want to focus on, the wording of that that instrument and the fact that it does. And I have had attorneys say, well, that's the way it's always been. I'll say again, well, that's just the way it is. Again, yes, you're right. It doesn't read correct. They'll, They'll finally admit it doesn't read correct. So it's a cadita conveyance. You conveyed your title. That note was destroyed. So now what are they foreclosing on the note? I don't think so. And what are you defending? Your title? I don't think so. You're right to repurchase it. Is it for the value of the note? No, I don't think so. You paid off the existing lien. You got some issues there that no one's bringing into court. That's pretty powerful stuff.
0: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure if I understood 100, percent but I have to read the first two
3: pages of that instrument, and you'll get it. Read it and look okay. for look for the words "grant conveyed title free of all liens and encumbrances subject to the lien or record." It's in the it's in that document. And write, yes. I, I email Greg, and Greg will get that out to you. We'll, we'll highlight it for you.
0: Yes, I I remember reading that, but I still don't quite understand what it means. But yeah. um, I'll try. <laughs> I, I,
3: I I guess I can I can tell you this much, Greg. Um, Early on, I got a call from an attorney general in one of the states, and and, and he had made an appointment to talk to me, and I thought, well, what what do you mean make an appointment to talk to me? And then I found out why they make appointments to talk to you, because you're going to listen. And when I did talk to him, he proceeded, I'm not going to say what state it was, but he proceeded to tell me about how they like to work with people that are witnesses that are really just trying to do foreclosure uh, rescue things in their state, and he was trying to find out really what I was up to, and and, and I said, well, can can I explain? And he says, I'm talking, you listen, I'll let you know when you can talk. I said, yes, sir. When I finally got a chance to talk, he could see that I knew what I was talking about. And he said, I'm going to ask you a question. He said, we subpoenaed all of Countrywide's uh, notes. We subpoenaed them, and they won't show it to us. So that's why we had to get a subpoena. He said, when we got the subpoena, we went out and looked at the notes, and they were all destroyed. Why were they destroyed? Because under cancellation of debt, you have to destroy them. You have to destroy them. That was another eye-opener early on, uh, Greg, when you asked me what really got me going. That was another one of the things that really got me at peak, because at the time I, was, I couldn't believe what I was hearing.
1: Right. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we're approaching our two-hour mark. So I'm asking you all to raise your hand by pressing star 8 on your phone, because this is pretty much last call for questions for this week. And uh, from New York to Connecticut to Georgia to Colorado to... Georgia? You said Georgia? Yeah, there are people in oh, here. Georgia is going to speak up. Oh, look at that. Hello, Georgia. Welcome to the call, and you're going to be the last question. Say your name and ask your question.
5: Hello, my name is Sonny, uh, and I have a question uh, about... Approaching these things in court, uh, a, a lot of times it's probably very important how you approach it, whether as a debtor debtor or a creditor. Uh, mm-hmm. would, would it be best to approach this as a creditor?
3: That, that would fall into the proper characterization of the transaction, and if you're the right of reversion, if you're the right of repurchase, you are the legal title and you are a creditor. Absolutely, you are, and that argument needs to be made very, very clearly and distinctly early on, and, and that would probably be brought in a motion early on. Yes, absolutely, you're a creditor. You cannot be. You cannot hear the case as a debtor. No, Greg. When a judge says, "Did you take the loan? Did you take the mortgage? Did you owe the money?" He's trying to find out if you really know you're a creditor. This question's excellent. No, he say objection. Strike those questions. I'm a creditor. No, um, that falls under a right of reversion, under a reverse purchase and sale. It's, that's where we started the whole thing.
1: All right. You could actually just say, your honor, irrelevant.
3: Well, yeah, it's just leading. It is a leading question. The judge should not ask that ever. But It's irrelevant. Well, it may be the judge's way of trying to determine if this guy has standing, because if he answers it right, I don't know if it's irrelevant. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. But uh, if it's for standing purposes, it needs to be uh, properly uh, addressed and or stricken. Yeah, you're right.
1: Okay, but, you know, then folks have to consider this. If you're in a foreclosure case and they're making a foreclosure claim against you, you probably need to have a counterclaim filed because the rules of court are wonderful. Counterclaims always get heard before the initial claim. And I beat up the city of Chicago, the county of Cook, and the state of Illinois three times on doing this very thing. When they came after me, some stuff that they wanted to do, I filed my counterclaims. And they kept annoying me, and they kept driving me. Uh, are you talking about affirmative
3: defenses, or just an actual counterclaim?
1: Counterclaims. Okay. Not affirmative defenses. Just okay. filing counterclaims.
3: Okay.
1: And I walked into the courtrooms, and I showed them. I, th- I threw 30 pages on the judge's desk, because... This woman judge was like, what do you mean, counterclaims? I go, ma'am, it's all been filed into the record. You've got to, don't, don't play games with me, right? And she's like, well, do you have a copy? I go, yeah, right here. Boom. All right, and I threw 30 pages of counterclaims after they were screwing with me for two and a half years. And she was just like, oh, shit. You know, and the city attorney was like, oh, shit. I told, the, I told the city attorney I'm going to call the plaintiff to the stand. Who's the plaintiff? The city of Chicago. All right, I'm going to call the city of Chicago to the stand. She goes, well, I'm the plaintiff. I go, no, you're not the plaintiff, are you? Oh, that's right. I'm just the plaintiff's attorney. All right, and so, okay, you can't go on the stand. You can't witness. You can't testify. And there's nobody here in this room that can. And I've got 30 pages of counterclaims showing the abuse of your gosh darn system trying to but, but
3: you didn't even you didn't even have the real party of interest in making those claims and that that's what you're establishing first, which is great.
1: I just nailed them on all this shit. And finally the judge looks at all my thirty pages of counterclaims and goes back to the very first one where I did a twelve beat and I said that the city of Chicago has failed to state a claim for Right. And so she goes, I'm going to grant this one. I go, no, Your Honor. They've been screwing with me for two and a half years and have a claim of $486,000 in fines against me. And I require you to hear the entire set of counterclaims from the most recent to the first. And she goes, sir, I'm not telling you that you don't have a right to do that. I'm just telling you that this ain't gonna happen in my courtroom today. <laughs> well, wow. so what does that tell you about the legal system?
3: Well, it's your it's your ability to properly characterize what's going on and, and, and address the the issues of uh, you know of, uh, parties' claims
1: in kind of a a genuflect to what you've been saying, right? If you know what's in their system. And you nail them on it. You can win. Alright? You just have to know the limitations of their system. And you nail them on it. And you don't do it like some crazy, you know, Montana free man. You do it within the construct of that system. And you can nail them. And you can win. And they want you to go away as fast and furious as possible. Because if they give you a win on all your claims, then the entire the entirety of North America gets to win, and they don't want to do that. I'm sorry. Go ahead.
5: Is is there a place where I can learn more about uh, all of this, either books or videos or
3: audios? I'd email I'd @email greg, but you're from Georgia? Yes. Yeah, that that's so interesting. I would I would look very closely at the Georgia's the only state in the union that has Neither a judicial or non-judicial uh, uh, foreclosure. Re- really, technically, you guys have something called a security deed, and that's what the argument we're making is. The entire United States has, has converted over to Georgia's uh, security deed, where where you basically in Georgia buying the house from the bank. And that's been on your books, I think, for a couple hundred years, and, and now we're all converting to that security deed. That's what the deed is in every other state. It's, it's, it's a uniform instrument, which is it's funny. You're calling from Georgia. I mean, it's just, that's really what this is all about. I think the uniformity issue has to do with the Georgia security deed that we've all been placed on now. So in Georgia, I would look closely at how how your procedures work with the bank and what the bank really owns. And Does the bank take title, and what are you doing buying it back? That's really what's happening across the nation just started with your state. (laughs) So, Meyer,
1: maybe on our next episode, we'll open up with talking about what the Georgia law is and how that might apply to everybody else.
3: I'm going to end this and leave you guys. Thank you so much for the time. But one thing I'd have you look at is, I mentioned is if you look at the new pooling and servicing agreements, they're talking about uh, securitizing one single mortgage that's made up or compromised of hundreds of mortgages. And that should give you an indication of what I'm talking about. All these loans closed on one day, but they were foreclosed on, on each origination. Okay? All right. Thank you for your time, and I'll look forward to hearing from you.
1: All right. Thank you, Georgia. Let's just thank everybody for their time and effort on the call, right?
3: I enjoyed it and I appreciate it and I uh, look forward to coming back.
1: As a quick note, please don't forget to uh, check out the comments and resource links on the chat board. Uh, we want to thank uh, Meyer Solomon for coming onto the show tonight and sharing this wonderful, helpful information, his ideas, and information with our flock. To contact Meyer Solomon, please go to www.facebook.com slash m-a-h-e-r dot s-o-l-i-m-a-n That's facebook.com slash m-a-h-e-r dot s-o-l-i-m-a-n As always, we encourage everyone to email us at thegalletgoose at gmail.com with questions, comments, Or suggestions for future speakers. We hope this program tonight has been helpful. You're all encouraged to visit our past and future guests' respective websites or listen to their pre-recorded shows here on the Gallant Goose and Friends. Just go to www.gallantgoose.com and follow the links to our Talk Show page. On behalf of our guest, Mayor Solomon. And our dedicated team here at the Gallant Goose and Friends, we thank you all. Good night, everyone, and we
2: will see you all next week. This is the Gallant Goose and Friends, airing live from coast to coast and around the world on Thursday nights at 6:45 Eastern, here on Talkshoe.com. Program number one three nine three three five. This is Big Papa Stampley reminding y'all, when it comes to saving your house. Don't let the bank of blues stop you from getting all your clues. We thank y'all for being here tonight. I
4: was born in Illinois, in a place they call Chicago. I was born in Illinois, a place they call Chicago. Now, see, I was schooled on the city streets. By, but I'm here to tell my story Raised on the south side In the zone they call the valley For one, we bought penny candy Chased rats up and down the alley I'm a bar, In Illinois In a place they call Chicago I was moved on the city street with a strong survivor, and I'm here to tell my story. Well, now, we didn't have much. I was the oldest of seven they worked two jobs. Mama held it together, a mile to school. Every day, sometimes I kept my lunch money, sometimes it took it I was born in Illinois, a place they call Chicago. Yeah, oh, Chicago. I was born on the city street. I had to make a decision. I always knew I would be a musician. No drug in or thug Dr. Lloyd for me. I'm gonna play this guitar. I'm gonna make the same way. I was born in Illinois. A place they go sky.
2: No purchase necessary. We were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for
0: details.